From the Hype HQ studio in Chicago, Illinois, it's Startup Hype Man, the podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Raj Nation, and I am the founder of Startup Hype Man. Fast-growing startups work with me because they want to become better storytellers. Whether that's for customers, investors, or a packed audience, they know that story is their ticket to stand out, stand apart, and change the game. And this podcast here is where I talk with entrepreneurs and leaders in the startup ecosystem, ranging from scale stage to early stage, as they share specific strategies that they have executed to stand out across three specific areas, sales, marketing, and people. Before we begin today's episode, remember you can head to StartupHypeMan.com and subscribe to the newsletter that doesn't suck. You'll get new podcast episodes and timely reads written by me, but also helpful articles from around the web and a notice of upcoming pitch competitions. All right, let's dive in and hear how today's guest is changing the game. Ladies and gentlemen, making his way to the microphone. Born and raised and residing in the Chicagoland area. He is the founder of Sales Melon and the author of The Transparency Sale. Please welcome Todd Capone. Wow, that is quite an entrance. Thank you for having me. Ladies and gentlemen, he is Todd Capone. And as I mentioned, he is not just. The, or he, I mentioned he is the founder of Sales Melon and the head speaker and trainer there, as well as author of The Transparency Cell, which was a 2019 Best Book Award from the American Book Awards, as well as an international bestseller. But he's got more to his accolades and titles than that. He's also the current managing director of Venture Scale by Sales Assembly. And on top of that, he is the former chief revenue officer of Power Reviews, where he built that from the ground up to become the fastest growing tech excuse me, tech company in Illinois. It's a mouthful to get out because it is that impressive of a background, Todd. Now, everybody listening, this is the first official work from home recording episode of our new season of the show. All the previous episodes thus far had been pre-recorded before we hit the pandemic. So I wanted to get Todd on and especially a very timely episode here because we are going to specifically talk about how to sell during a downturn. We're in this pandemic. There's a lot of market uncertainty. Todd's got a ton of experience in this, and I'm very excited to have this conversation with him. So Todd, first off, welcome to the show. And I want to just ask you off the bat, how to sell during a downturn? Why is this on your mind and why is it important to you? Well, it's on our, our mind because obviously we're living in the middle of it right <laughs> I suppose, now. I suppose, yeah, that's a um, dumb question. My <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, it, it's on everybody's mind. And I think that's the thing that, uh, you know, when I try to give advice to people is, if, if you're going to be good in sales, um, like one of the things that one of the skills or talents that you probably wish you had was the ability to read minds. And like, gosh, if I could read minds, I'd be awesome at selling. Well, it turns out right now, you can read everybody's mind, right? Everybody is living in this world, both personally and then professionally. And so to be able, it, it's actually a great advantage uh, to have because now in a time like an upswing, your potential buyers could be thinking about a hundred different things and experiencing and thinking about investing in a hundred different things. Well, right now there's only two or three that they can be focused on. And so there is a great opportunity for sellers that hone their focus right now. And so that's why I've been so jazzed up about it. Yeah, I love it. And we're going to dive 
fully into this. This is going to be an action-packed episode. Before we get more into this main topic, let's learn a little bit more about your own background. Um, you call yourself a sales and science amalgamator. And, and before we hit recording, you started to tell me a little bit of how you think about things. So uh, I got to know a little bit about that. But tell our audience, why, why sales and science amalgamator? Yeah, I, I've always been a nerd for decision science, behavioral science, and then learning theory. Like, you know, how do you get information into the brains of people? And so uh, that's always been really exciting to me. And, you know, the book, The Transparency Sale, came from a behavioral science research study around how consumers interact when a website is acting as the salesperson and how you can take those learnings and apply them to B2B or human-to-human learning. And so the thing that we were talking about before uh, we we started the recording is this idea that um, because I'm such a nerd for this stuff, I actually shy away from reading uh, books on sales. I actually, every morning, I've subscribed to a bunch of neuroscience, behavioral science, decision science type journals. And I read at least one research study every morning. I just figure, like, find one that I think might be interesting and, and try to read it. And then as the day progresses, I ended up, you know, hearing things that kind of plug into it. Like this morning, I was reading one on the uh, lonely, loneliness of leadership and how that's typically a lonely role. And then you add to it the economic uncertainty and the climate and then add to it that we're all having to work by ourselves at home. And we've got this triple whammy going on on that. But that's sales and science, science amalgamator to me is taking science because there's so much rich data out there and learnings that have yet to make the, its way into the sales and leadership world. And I'm trying to be one of the people that helps make that happen. Yeah, well, it's an interesting perspective because um, I think one of the top traits to effectively sell is a high curiosity quotient, for lack of a better phrase. And that's kind of what you're saying here is you're not looking for the answers, you're looking for the best questions, the best answers, you're looking for the best questions. Yeah, I'm looking, I find the data. So, you know, if I see a research study that says that, uh, for example, doctors, all right, so when you have a, a life-altering health event, let's say you have a heart attack and you go to the doctor and the doctor takes care of everything, and then the doctor sends you home with advice and guidance around making lifestyle changes, right? That's what they do. Guess what percentage of people actually adhere to those lifestyle changes? It's only 30%. It's got to be small. Yeah, it's got to yeah, be it, There's no way it's more than 50. <laughs> right. It's 30% and that's life or death. So I see a, a research study on that and I think, all right, now let's take that to leadership. Right now, what we've done is we've sent all of our sellers and our team members home with instructions that have to do with the life or death of your organization. And it's not even the life or death of me as a human being. But you can imagine that those sales reps are having a really hard time adhering to those lifestyle changes that have just been prescribed by their leader, aka their doctor. And that has tremendous impacts on the, the um, effectiveness of sales organizations in this climate where now everybody's remote. So that's just an example of like, I look at the data and then go, all right, how does that correlate to the types of things that we're thinking about? Well, speaking of lifestyle changes, uh, we are now a full month, yeah, just about a full month. So we, we are recording this on April 7th and we've had, everyone's had about a month now of working from home and more or less national lockdown and quarantines. So as it pertains to lifestyle changes, how have you adjusted your workout routine, if at all? 
Um, so what I did, so obviously my gym closed. Uh, so my workout routine, um, I never liked gyms, but I kind of forced myself into starting to like them. But before it, so I'm, I'm blessed by this. I actually made investments and created a gym in my basement. Um, <laughs> nice. and, and so, um, and my wife uses it every morning. So she's uh, like always been using it and I've never used the basement one. Um, cause I always, like I got used to going to the gym. Sure. Um, and so now it's actually, um, the, the transition has been pretty easy for me to get down there. I just had to put a new Roku on my TV down there so I could at least watch TV. I'm trying <laughs> to, uh, trying to get caught up on the latest season of Ozark right now. Oh, so. very nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For me, it's been, um, we, I'm in a one bedroom apartment with my girlfriend. Oh man. I, you know, I was always, so, you know, I also teach yoga as you may or may not know, but because of that, I have free membership to like five different gyms. Cause I'm, you know, either teach there or I have a partnership with them. Right. So like every month I was getting like for free, like $500 in free gym membership. So I never had to like worry about, Oh, I need to have a good home setup. Right. Um, and so then all this happens and all we have here is two five pound dumbbells. <laughs> so I'm like trying to figure this out. And I, you know, and I actually, I had, I had a personal trainer and obviously we had to pause through all this, but she wrote up a workout and it was all like different things were like, you know, 10 to 15 reps. And I'm like, well, but 10 to 15 reps at five pounds. So now I've had to like change it and I'm doing like literally like 50 rep and 60 rep sets <laughs> uh, just to like get any type of like burn in my body. And man, has it been, uh, it's, it's been a challenge for sure. Yeah. I mean, cause you're almost frowned upon by like taking a walk around the block and going for yeah. a run and everything right now. So yeah, yeah, that's, it's tough. Exactly. Exactly. And then the, we don't have that much space. Teaching yoga through zoom has been a new thing now. So like, but even that requires rearranging the whole place to be able to like get the right setup going. And so that's why I've been more or less just avoiding even like doing yoga and we'll see. I think we're all going to come out of this 15 pounds heavier and all going back <laughs> exactly. to driving to those gym memberships real quick. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, okay. So let's dive into really the meat of everything today. And it's how to sell during a downturn. As I mentioned, we are recording this four weeks about into quarantine. And we know that at this stage, we have at absolute minimum, another four weeks of this. I, you could probably argue a lot of people would say it's going to be maybe another two months or three months of this though. Let's think about how it affects sales teams in particular. There's a lot of stress being created. Um, I think a lot of fear. Should I even reach out to people? What do I talk to customers about? Am I going to be tone deaf? All those things. So let's start with mindset. If you are on the front lines, you are an SDR, a BDR, an account executive, what mindset should you have at this time? Well, let's start with it's all about empathy, right? So I think that everybody needs to like look in the mirror for a second and go, all right, when I personally face a downturn in my personal life, right? I, I've got economic uncertainty. I've got a personal recession going on. Like just imagine that that's about to happen. What do you do? Well, the first thing you do is you probably eliminate all of your discretionary spending, right? So if you had a yoga instructor, a personal trainer, like maybe you calm that down for a little bit. Uh, you need a new couch, it probably can wait. You'll, you know, deal with the one with flies on it for a little bit longer. So the discretionary stops in your personal life. The second thing you do is you look at your essentials, the things that you need and go, all right, I need them, but I need to extend my runway on them. Um, so 
there is a, a subconscious drive to panic. And that's, that's literally what's kept us alive as a species for the last however many <laughs> millions of years is uh, we do tend to overreact, which is why you see people hoarding toilet paper. But they're trying to extend their runway. They say, hey, listen, I'm going to buy in bulk to save some money and make sure I've got the essentials for as long as I need them. And then the third thing you do is you uh, eliminate risk. So you look at all of the ways to make sure that you're safe and that you don't expose yourself to circumstances that are going to make the worst case a reality. So that's in your personal life. Well, now let's think about that from a human to human selling perspective. Number one, everybody you're selling to is a human being. And as it turns out, they're all dealing with the exact same things. We're all kind of in a, a personal uncertainty, a personal recession right now. And so the people that you're going to be reaching out to are dealing with those exact same things. They're removing discretionary, extending runway on the essentials and removing risk. But then those people you're talking to are also doing it in their businesses. So when we talk about uh, you could have a million things to be focused on during an up market, in a down market, you're only focused on those three things. So the first thing that sellers need to do is to have extreme empathy and understand that you're selling to human beings and those human beings in their personal lives and their professional lives are doing the exact same things that you are probably doing in your personal life. So that's number one. Number two is then to take a look and this may, if you're a salesperson, you know, get with your marketing team, but you've got to hone your message on, again, you can read the minds of the people that you're selling to. You've got to hone your message to those three things. If your messaging contains things like, hey, we can get you more leads and we're going to help you um, get extreme revenue growth. And like, notice I never mentioned revenue growth as something that any of us are thinking about right now. <laughs> revenue growth in a market like this is actually a nice to have. So you've got to have extreme empathy and then couple that with messaging that homes to the things that we're all thinking about. Right, those are the first couple of things that come to mind that we all need to be considering um, to be empathetic sellers. But again, we can read the minds of the people we're selling to. You've got an opportunity to do that, but you've got to make sure that your messaging that if it was developed during an up market, it's probably not going to work in a down market. So you've got to make that adjustment right now. Yeah. And, you know, to your point of having the empathy, which is so important, you know, it's what I've been preaching for the last month. And I think, you, you know, you have, and pretty much any sales leader has been talking about the importance of empathy with good reason. And the funny thing is that it's like, you should have that anyways, even like, regardless, you should always right. have empathy if you want to like effectively get your message out there. But um, I think there's a, there's a misunderstanding between having empathy doesn't just mean opening an email by saying, hey, hope you're staying safe. Our company right. helps, helps uh, software providers generate more leads, X, Y, and Z, right? There's a lot more than just the intro line that says, hey, hope you're safe right now. Right. Yeah, it's... Um there's a, in the book, uh, I actually have a screenshot of my inbox of about, there's like 30 emails that I'd gotten in a row that were from salespeople. And it literally looks like white noise. Um, you know, the, the first thing to think about with regards to what you just said is that we all need to be cognizant that everybody's inbox has both the subject line and a preview of the first mm -hmm. 10 words, right? And if you're saying what you just said, um, you're going to be, you're still going to be white noise because everybody's saying that, Oh, I hope everything's okay. I hope you're staying safe. You know, all mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. 
Um, I, I'm just an advocate of you've got an opportunity in those first 10 words of the emails that you send out to, to stand out. And the way you do that is to be a giver and to be personalized and make it valuable. And what I mean by that is how do you optimize those words to make the point that it's specific to you as an individual and it's meant to be helpful. Um, so think about those first 10 words. I mean, back in the, the up market, I'll give you an example. And I haven't brainstormed on really good ones in a down market. But in an up market, I remember I had all these emails uh, that started with, I wanted to. I wanted to see mm -hmm. if you were interested. I wanted to see if you had 15 minutes. I wanted to. Um, or the guilt trip ones, which are, hey, I tried to reach out before, or I wanted to make sure you got my last email. Like, all right, thanks for the reminder as to why I didn't open the last email. Um, but <laughs> as if, if, as if like, it, as if it ever happens that the, that like your previous email actually wasn't received, like it's this technology, like there's like a 0.1 exactly. chance that your email didn't go through somehow. <laughs> well, yeah, it's always funny when you think about people saying, Oh, I wonder if it got lost in the mail. The post office doesn't lose mail anymore. Like I, it's, it's the same thing with email. It doesn't get lost. Maybe it ends up in a spam folder, but um, I, I remember uh, as the CRO of power reviews, I got a couple of emails in a row that stood out. You know, one being, Todd, here is a, a study of what SDRs are making in the Chicago market. So that was the preview. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I opened it up and it said, hey, we noticed that you just posted new SDR openings on your website, thought this could be helpful. And I was like, where's the sales pitch? There's no sales pitch, this is great. <laughs> like, that's awesome, thank you. And then a couple of weeks later, after my quarter ended, they sent another one that said, um, Todd, here is a board template uh, for that CROs are using to help speed their time to board preparation. And I open it up and that's exactly what it was. And I was like, all right, who are these guys? And like, you know, then I went into the signature. And, and so I think that those are just examples of how do you stand out in a personalized way in those first 10 words, make it valuable, and then get rid of the sales pitch. Just be a giver in this market. Mm -hmm. And you'll draw people to you if you're constantly being seen as a resource instead of somebody that's there to try to sell you something. So, that, so yeah, it's an interesting take, um, especially as you think about, yeah, you know, you think about empathy and the natural default reaction is, okay, I need to start this by saying, hey, hope you're doing okay, well, healthy, whatever, safe. And at the same time, like you said, you have that email preview, right? You can only see the first seven to 10 words. If it's on mobile, I think it's even less than that. And so if everyone's email says, hope, hope, hope is the first line, right? Or I hope, or are you, you know, those kinds of things. Um, it's the, it's, it's effectively the same thing happening because you just sound like everyone else. Mm -hmm. So in that case, what is a more effective way? And you mentioned, you know, obviously personalized, make it sincere. But if we were going to, like, why don't we like hypothetically craft an email right now? Uh, <laughs> well, like, I'll tell you, say, I mean, yeah, go ahead. We, we, could, we could probably dig into that um, I, and we, we could brainstorm around it. I, can I, I, before we jump to that, sure. I want to give a couple of other pieces of advice for salespeople right now. Um, because there's obviously, you've got to optimize the, the messaging, right? Because no one's going to open your email if it looks like every other email. Mm -hmm. um, or if it's self-serving and, uh, you know, appears to be tone deaf. There, there's a couple other things that I want to make sure I, I get out there. Um, the, the second thing is once you engage with a potential buyer, think about right now, you're desperate. Um, you're trying to extend your runway on your essentials. 
if some if you see something that maybe you potentially need, but that salesperson is making you do a lot of the homework, making it really hard on you. Um, right now, the priority is those three things, right? Eliminate discretionary, extend runway on essentials, and reduce risk. Um, but it's got to be easy. It's so I think salespeople need to be looking at ways to remove friction from their buying journey. Uh, that's so important right now. And what that means is number one, um, you know, obviously I'm biased. I wrote a book called The Transparency Sale. But the reason that the transparency sale works is because when you're transparent and you lead with your flaws, you reduce the amount of homework a buyer needs to do to look, you know, to see through your BS. Um, because if all you're doing is presenting your products as perfect, buyers, our brains subconsciously, we know that not to be the case. So we go do homework on our own, which is why analysts exist and reference exists. And if you're in the tech space, G2.coms and Trustradius exist and why Glassdoor exists with their reviews from current and, poor and former employees. Because sellers normally paint this picture of perfection and then force the buyer to go do the homework. I think there's a tremendous opportunity right now to lead with transparency and help do the homework for the buyers, meaning, hey, you might need this. Here's why you might not. Here's some of the things that could go wrong, but here's the things that are helping companies in this climate that are a lot like yours. And just make buying easy. Also, eliminate steps from the buying journey. If right now you're still one of those companies that does a discovery call, or I'm sorry, a discovery and qualification call before a demo, and like you got to earn the right to a demo, stop it. You have to stop that right now. Give a buyer what they need. Just give it. Give, 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 and stop doing the gated type selling because, again, if you add steps to the buying journey right now, buyers are going to find other stuff to work on that are easier wins. Um, and then the, the other piece around this is thinking about the buyer's in a consensus sale, consensus selling is really hard. Imagine now that your buyers are all working by themselves in their homes. They can't even walk down the hallway to go talk to the consensus team. So you've got to make buying easier. You've got to make your contracts easy. Remove any one-way language that you have in your contracts, uh, like one-way language meaning like auto renews that have notification clauses or auto um, you know, at renewal time, the price goes up every year by two and a half percent or whatever the heck you do. You've got to remove all of that. You've got to negotiate transparently and you've got to make implementation look super easy. So those are all pieces of this. You got to stand out in the inbox, but then make the buying journey and the implementation journey as easy as possible. Otherwise, other things are going to get prioritized. So really, it, it's we've got three phases here to, to summarize what you just said. Getting people's attention is phase one. Communicating with them once you have their attention and still being able to generate interest is two. And then three is the process of purchasing what you have to sell. Yeah. And how do we make all these things have more, really at the end of the day, how does each step of this have more empathy for the person on the other end? Okay. So with that framework, let's, let's do like a deep dive then into each category here. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's think about the, the messaging, right? Um, we said before, if we just start every email with hope you're doing well or hope you're safe, it's gonna, get, it's gonna be the same noise that everyone else is sending. But we do wanna be personal and sincere, but we don't wanna be tone deaf, right? And then I'm, and I'm going through the mind of like an SDR or an AE right now, right? Like how, it's like, oh my God, but you said this, but then I have to do that, and how do I do this and do that, right? Um, some of the things I've been working on with, with, with my clients and the teams I've been working with is 
figuring out like the nuance of this, right? So if we, t- if we are going to create a hypothetical example here of like, let's say we're selling to, let's say we've got like payroll software or benefits software and we're selling to an HR leader and we're trying to craft this email to the head of HR or the VP of HR and we can't start it with, hey, hope you're doing well or hope you're safe. How do we start this email while not coming off as like, does this person even know what's going on in the world right now? Yeah. Um, So payroll software, you're selling it to HR. So I think, you know, the first step we need to take is um, selling to HR payroll. Um, One thing that I'm a huge advocate of in a downturn, by the way, because it helps with this because you don't have to recreate the wheel every single time. Um, One of the things that 12 years ago when I was running sales for a tech company during the, the great recession, they called it, is uh, we practice something called extreme focus, uh, which means we're gonna pick a a vertical, firmographic vertical, meaning it's a type of company uh, in terms of their geo, their their vertical, and their size, and every rep is going to focus on that for the next two weeks. And so what we did is we didn't just choose manufacturing, we choose aerospace. And then we created our messaging around aerospace, and then within that, we were going after VPs of manufacturing. So we created messaging that was pinpointed to VPs of manufacturing of aerospace and everybody focused on that for two weeks. Mm. Um, now with some of my advisory clients, like I've got one advice. And by the way, what that did is we went from a company that was about to go out of business to growing 400% year over year. We sold Boeing, we sold Cessna, Gulfstream, uh, and then we slowly moved out and went to oil and gas and then automotive. Mm. And then, you know, we, we kept, and it just allowed us to steamroll everything. So I would, I, at first I would advocate for that to go, all right, um, what we need to do is go not only just sell payroll to HR people, but what is the vertical and what is the company size so that we can figure this out once and then spend the time honing our account list to make sure that we're hitting everybody with something that we think is going to resonate really well. And like I think one actually, of my advice- yeah, well, let me, let me just jump in here. I think even within that, it's not that you like hyper segment or, or yes, you hyper segment down to like the vertical type and the company type. But then even within that, it's like, okay, now of these company types, which are the companies that are probably doing well right now? versus which are the companies that are probably really struggling right now. And then you have to pick based on specifically like what your product is, which is the better market to go into and, and how do you position appropriately, right? Well, yeah. And I think, um, so one example is there's one of my advisory clients, um, they're hyper-focused right now, not only on apparel, but shoes. Why? Like, why did they pick shoes? Well, one of their biggest clients is in the shoe vertical and they went and interviewed that shoe client to find out like, how is this helping you? And then what are those things that are helping you that are specific to in this environment? Mm. Right. And then, so they learned from that one, I, I don't remember, it might've been Crocs. Um, and then like they learned from Crocs about like what specifically their technology is doing to help that organization in this uncertainty. And then they use that to craft their messaging to go after 40 other apparel shoe companies. Right. And so like, that's the way you do it. You shouldn't be sitting in a room with a bunch of SDRs and your SDR leaders, like contemplating like, Hey, how can we help figure out who your clients are that you're helping in a great way 
figure out which of those things you're helping them with are applicable to this environment and then use that as your means to craft that personalized and valuable messaging right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the other thing too, that comes with that, and this is what, you know, with some of my clients that I'm working with right now, um, what we've been doing is looking at, and, and to be honest, this is, this is my strategy regardless of the conditions, but I think it applies even more so here is can you frame this in a way where you talk about what other people who are just like them are doing right now are thinking about right now? Exactly. Should have turned off my phone notifications. <laughs> um, so, you know, my, my formula is always que pasa, problem, approach, solution, action. Plus you add some personalization and some proof in there too, but the, generally the meat of it is that. And so the way we've been kind of structuring a lot of these emails is saying like, hey, we've been talking to other blank at, you know, insert company type. Here's what they've been telling us there is on their mind right now. And then you have like that statement of what they're telling us. Here's what we're doing for companies like them. Thought, you know, thought it might make sense to reach out to you. Right. And then that's, that's the general gist of the email, but effectively, and you, and you tell me if you think it's, that's not the right approach, but effectively my belief there is you are, you have empathy. If you're able to say, here's the situation others like you are facing right now, while not directly emailing and accusing that person of being like, Hey, you're terrible at your job. And then it creates a natural walk, like lead into the solution, which you don't even have to have to actually say that much about if you've appropriately captured their situation up front. Yeah, I think that's a great way to do it. Start with that. Start with the, um, almost make it a prediction. And I'm, I'm obviously an advocate for being humble. Um, yeah, but, you know, yeah. Starting, <laughs> starting an email with like, hey, I can, I can I guess that this is probably what you're dealing with. Um, and, you know, here's a, a way to think about it. Yeah. Right. And oh, by the way, we can help you get there. But I, I'm just, you know, for me, um, I, I'm just a big advocate for giving right? Like, Hey, here's some just advice. Yeah. You're probably dealing with this. Here's a way to think about it. And if you need some help with that, we're here to help. Right. Mm -hmm. And then, and then like, we're and then go to this link and check out this shoe company or this aerospace car, like, you know, to see what they're doing. Um, but like make it really easy and just kind of ease up on the, the sales pitch and be more of a giver. Yeah. Um, last summer, I'll say, I should send this to you. I don't know if you'd seen it before, but last summer I, I released a short ebook on this thing. Um, I called it the X to Y paradox. And I think it, for crazy enough, I think it applies more right now than ever before. And it was on using case studies in your outreach, like, like referencing examples of success. And because you, you mentioned before, like with the whole transparency sale methodology, you know, it's like admit flaws, you know, talk about where you're good, but where you're lacking. And, and my whole um, philosophy of the X to Y paradox is that when you look at people who send cold emails, oftentimes you will get their best one to three examples of success in that email where they're like, hey, we help so-and-so grow revenue by 600% year over year. And the idea here in my estimation is that they're currently in a state of X and you giving that 600% growth example is a state of Y. And that's just too far of a gap to bridge to get them from X to Y. Because they kind of like being in X. That's interesting. Right? Yep. So then my approach to that is, okay, so what's going to get them to actually be more interested? 
Because if you show them the best example, especially if they don't even know you yet, if it's a cold outreach, to me, and, and you, you have all the decision science, so I'm curious to get your thoughts here. To me, like the layman's term is it activates the yeah, but brain, where the brain says, yeah, but what did you have to fudge to make that sound good? Or yeah, but that could never work for us. Our situation is unique and different. That's kind of like the inherent thought your mind goes to. Yeah. So I'm an advocate that you share an X plus one example, which is just an incremental gain versus where they are today. Cause now it's believable and they are more likely to have the conversation. But I think specifically during a pandemic, a downturn, whatever we call it, I almost think it makes even more sense because like you said before, big revenue gains or whatever the thing is, is not going to sell right now. Whereas more like risk protection or risk avoidance is going to sell, which inherently is like a calmer example of success if you're going to throw that out there. Yeah. Yeah. And extending your runway. Exactly. So, I mean, here's the data. Um, and it started by looking at the way that consumers look at reviews when they buy stuff online, right? That, you know, 96% of us now buy, uh, look at reviews before we buy anything of medium to high consideration that we haven't bought before. But the, the mind-blowing stat is, number one, 82% of us go right to the negative reviews first. So when you're looking at a new refrigerator, you don't actually read the fives. You want to read the ones, twos, threes, and fours and go, all right, subconsciously, we're wired to try to predict what our experience is going to be like. And if all we hear is perfect, we subconsciously know that perfect doesn't exist. <laughs> so we go right to the negatives, right? But then the, the mind blower was for me, um, when an average review score is between a 4.2 and a 4.5 on a product, that product sells at a higher conversion rate than any other score, including a five. So a 4.2 sells better than a five, right? And it's, again, and that's, that's in general, like different categories have different scores, um, like you know, car seats for children, uh, the score skews higher. Books, it skews higher. Some others, it skews lower. But the bottom line is we are wired as human beings to do exactly what you just said, the, the, the yeah, but, right? That if all I see is perfect fives and, oh, wow, like, hey, you know, this does, you know, this will change your life. You know that that doesn't apply to you subconsciously and you try to seek out what, why are the reasons why this won't apply? And so that's why leading with that makes the buying brain not only click into trust much faster because you're laying it on a foundation of trust, but it also satisfies the brain's desire to predict what their experience is going to be like. So while you might be able to claim in an email that, hey, we can give you 600% growth, you know, maybe there's a combination of the two that uh, there's 600% growth for our best customer, but this is their circumstance. For your circumstance, we're seeing ranges like this. And like that could be your, your X to Y. Like, I love that X to Y paradox. That's awesome. Yeah, I'll, I'll send it to you. Uh, and that's yeah. cool that you now, now to have decision signs backing it as well. <laughs> but, uh, right. um, and it turns out all of that applies to human to human selling. It's because uh, when a website is acting as the salesperson, imperfection sells better than perfection. The same thing happens in human to human selling. I started trying it while I was CRO. And like it was freaking magic. Uh, sales cycle shrinking. We're, our win rates went way up because partially because we were working deals that we should win mm -hmm. and we make it really hard on our competitors. And, and so all of that applies to basically any type of sphere of influence that you might be trying to impart on others. Well, and I, so I read your book, Transparency Cell last fall, I think. And, and I, I think I immediately recommended it to five people. 
Um, Thank you. So it's funny because what you just said there, like I started implementing a couple of those things myself where, you know, I'd get into, you know, deeper level discussions with potential clients. And whereas previously I was trying to almost be like, yeah, I can touch on that thing too. You know, if we work together, I just started being like, that's not my lane. Here's what we're going to focus on. And we're going to do this part really well, but you're going to need to, I would recommend you pull in someone else or use someone internally for this other thing. Whereas previously I was trying to be like, yeah, yeah, I can do that too. Of course. You know, and and I started to find the conversation. It's almost like you feel, and I'm sure you probably have a story or two from your time doing this live um, with, with power reviews. You can almost like feel the energy in the room shift and like facial expressions change when you get to that exactly. level of realness with them, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It, like the, uh, I, I've got lots of B2B examples, but the one uh, B2C example that always jumps out to me is Ikea. Mm. Like, you know, Ikea is the number one furniture retailer in the world for the ninth straight year. And the experience is a freaking nightmare. Like, you know, <laughs> I used to work, like you, my high school job was at Ikea. My summer job was no Ikea, way. by the way. <laughs> yeah. And it, like, imagine you go into an Ikea and you're like, hmm, I need some designer to help me design my room. Um, then I'm going to need the furniture delivered mm-hmm. to my home assembled. And they'd be like, all right, cool. Go to room and board, go to Macy's, go to Crate and Barrel. Um, you know, Ikea is known for creating an experience where you, you have to find the products. You've got to write the code because you're going to the warehouse to pick it and to pack it onto a cart that doesn't have brakes, which seems like a massive oversight, right? And then you got to jam it into your car Tetris style, drive home with injuries, open the box. There's 150 parts that don't have any words on the work instructions. <laughs> That's the worst you, part. Yeah. No words. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and then you F-bomb your way through that assembly. And when you're done, you're like, oh, you know what? We should have bought the end tables with this, this bedroom set. And it's crazy, but I, I think in all of our businesses, we need to embrace this idea that we are not all things to all people and that we should understand, hey, what is um, our modern Scandinavian design furniture that we didn't pay a lot for, which is Ikea's value proposition? And then what's going to be the, you're going to have to find it, pick it, pack it onto a cart, jam it in your car and assemble it. Yeah. And understand that, embrace that because that helps buyers make faster, better decisions, more confident decisions that they don't end up returning because the expectations have been set the right way. And in this down climate right now, we've got to remove friction from the buying journey. And part of it is to help the buyers predict what their experience is and, and transparency is the way you do that. Yeah. And, and I think the other part too of the IKEA model is that, you know, because my, my, my last place, um, bookshelf IKEA, it was actually very similar to the one that's in your place right now. Um, where it's like that like ladder with like slats coming off of yeah, it. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, TV stand, Ikea, coffee table, Ikea. And like, and you know what's really funny is the first graphic in the terrible instructions where it's all like ca- cartoon drawings is the person trying to do it himself and being like frustrated and everything's broken. <laughs> and, exactly. I, and, I'm like, I, and I still tried to do it myself. <laughs> and then I was like, right. okay. Well, Every time. Every <laughs> but, time. But exactly. The, you know, even as, I mean, it, it takes like 10 hours to get through all that stuff, but the satisfaction when you finish that, because you're like, oh my God, I made it through all that. You have almost like, even though it's like Ikea, you didn't pay a ton for it. You have a certain level of like pride almost in the fact that you made it through that bear of a, you know, of a <laughs> assembly process. Exactly. Exactly. No. So, um, and by the way, the other thing that's funny about you, you mentioned with the, the review sites, which was kind of the genesis for transparency sale. Um, 
after I read your book, I started paying attention to like my girlfriend is an like, uh, obsessive review shopper. Like, I'm the I'm the one who will just be like, oh, it looks cool, I'll get it, and she'll be like, no, 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 look at the reviews. And what's really funny to your point is the first thing she will do is jump to the the negative. She like, she scans past all the positive reviews to find the first negative review, and then yeah. we'll go down the rabbit hole of what are all the other negative reviews. Exactly. That's what I, I think the data was showing that 82% of us do that. So, and I know I do that. I'm like, I don't, you know, I've already got the five, you know, perfect five speak from their marketing department. That's what drew me in. Now I want to see what the thing really does and try to, and the other thing about it, um, you know, for anybody that has negative reviews on their products, a lot of times people get really upset by that, but it actually, it helps. And, um, you know, we're all wired to be able to read a negative review and go, all right, would that even apply to me? Mm-hmm. You know, like when you're reading a restaurant and a restaurant review and uh, they get all fives and fours for their food, but then there's ones and twos for this one waitress or one waiter, um, like that right. the service was really terrible and they were so right. busy. It was a Friday night at eight o'clock and I'm like, all right, I'm, uh, I'm going on a Friday at five and that waiter probably won't be the one I have. So if the food's great, so, I mean, that's, that's what we do with negative. So embrace the negative reviews uh, in your own organizations. But, you know, part of the advice is, um, if, especially if you're in tech, go do a Google search of um, what is it like to work with my company? Like, you know, and obviously replace your company name with my company and, and see what you find because you know buyers are doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, what's amazing is that the larger the organization, the first thing that comes up with almost every one of those Google searches is Glassdoor. So before it, and again, that's saying, what is it like to work with, not work at, but Glassdoor reviews show up with a rating snippet that shows, um, you know, the, the star rating and how many reviews there's been. If you don't think buyers are looking at that, you're mistaken. Buyers are not just buying your products and services. They're buying your people. They're buying the relationship they're going to have with you as a vendor. And they're looking at Glassdoor scores to see like, hey, what's the culture like there? Is it toxic? Do people hate each other? Are they cool? And so that's part of how you start to collect the reality of what your pros and cons are is you really should try to make that match what what a potential buyer is going to find when they do their own homework anyway. Part two of your framework on how to sell during a downturn is to reduce friction in the sales slash buying process. Before we get into that, though, I just want to take a step back to let our listeners know about a new sponsor partner of the show in Sales Hacker. So if you're a longtime listener here, then you know that I try to feature a more B2B slant on the show. And specifically right now, given the economic conditions, I think sales is more important than anything else and why I have someone like Todd join the show. And Sales Hacker is the world's smartest community for forward-thinking B2B professionals. 135,000 members deep, which means if you're a CEO right now, or a head of sales right now, or a SDR, a BDR, account executive, any one of those levels, Sales Hacker is going to help you right now get better at your job, plain and simple, with things like podcasts, articles, webinars, and research actual sales experts and practitioners, including yours truly, Todd, maybe you've even actually contributed to Sales Hacker in the past. I don't know. Can I tell you that they just came out with their list of, I think it's like the 90 something best sales books of all time. Yeah. First book on the list, my brother. 
There Damn, it is. you made number one. Oh my god! <laughs> well, it was the first one. It was. I think it was listed. I. I don't think it was listed in stack rank oh, order, but it is the first yeah. one up. Yeah. So, uh, but it, it's on the list right on top. Awesome. So I was Congrats. pretty proud so, of that. Yeah. So today's guest is now been featured on Sales Hacker as the, one of the ninety best sales books of all time. So uh, that's how valuable the information they're pushing out is, and I love what they're doing there. Uh, it's funny, like literally a webinar I did back in. December with Sales Hacker. They just published on Replay earlier this week and I had like 10 people being like, hey, that was really good. And I was like, where did you even see this? So uh, get, get up, get in tune with Sales Hacker. I love that they're a partner of this podcast now. It's at saleshacker.com and you can uh, get access to everything that we mentioned there uh, and including the 90 best sales books as Todd just mentioned and maybe get a link to that transparency sale at saleshacker.com. So today we're with Todd Capone author of Transparency Sale, founder of Sales Melon, as well as like nine other things that you've got going on in your life that are all impressive. The topic is how to sell during a downturn. We are one month into pandemic season, if you want to call it that. So we've identified the three parts, Todd, to your framework of how to sell during a downturn is number one, update your messaging. Number two, reduce friction in the sales slash buying process. And then number three, make the ultimate buying of it much easier. So let's talk about part two now, reducing friction within the sales process. Um, you mentioned earlier when you alluded to it that, you know, if you're trying to like qualify people on discovery to get to a demo, just shrink it all into one call. Do you think it's still appropriate to actually have that discovery up front or should, they, should people just be going straight into demonstration? Well, that's part of what I talked about with regards to extreme focus too. Um, that if you take your organization's uh, target list and you go, hey, we're going to get very extreme on our firmographic focus, meaning the company sizes, the verticals, um, and the geos of the companies that we're going to go at, and then the, the demographics of the individuals we're trying to target, I'm hoping that you shouldn't need to do much qualification. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't have to do much discovery because you should just be like, hey, I'm here to help. Um, and here it is. What do you think? And here's the pros and the cons. I, like really, when talking about that transparency is, is part of uh, part two, removing friction from the buying journey, which is helping them predict what their experience is going to be like. But yeah, um, if you've got extreme focus in the types and, uh, of companies and individuals you're going after, I'm, I'm hoping that um, your messaging is tight to them where you're just like, here it is. Is this something that you want or not? Versus yeah. I need to understand whether I'm spending time with the right person because hopefully you've done your homework beforehand. So yeah. that's part of trying to reduce those extra steps because discovery is about making sure that what I'm going to talk about is appropriate for you as a potential buyer. With focus, you should know that 80% of the way there. Well, it's interesting because that, that really... Um that that really almost like sings the the praises in effect of how interrelated each of these components are right because if you've done a better job with your targeting and the messaging and your outreach and they agree to have a meeting based off that well now you've basically qualified them as you're saying through the outreach and and I totally agree with that and that's why actually I don't know about you but I'm and I guess we're jumping back to messaging for a second but I'm actually an advocate of like longer emails that just get out the point of uh, or, and like give them the information and you got a story tell within it you can't just like vomit 90 paragraphs but i'm not i've never been the person who's like your email can't be longer than three sentences otherwise you've used up too much real estate i'm like no if you like 
talk about what's going on with them and what you think you can do in a sequential way that makes sense, you actually can get them to read a good amount. And if they say yes to that, then they're like, like, like you just said, they've qualified themselves. Can I give you some advice on that? Um, it's another, it's more brain science. Um, so first of all, um, it, let's say you're on um, Zappos and you're looking at a pair of shoes. Uh, they've got the pair of shoes and then below it, there's the item description and you mm -hmm. see three bullets uh, like it, you know, it's this, it's this, it's this, and then it fades. And then there's something that says read more. Mm -hmm. And uh, so if you want to see everything, you can read more and it just opens up. Why do you think they do that? Well, number one is that um, our brains uh, seek out ease. And so when you open an email and it reads like war and peace, your brain literally cries a little bit on the inside. <laughs> um, so so that's, that's part of why e-commerce does that. And I'm an advocate of doing that in your emails, meaning I, I think that you do need to keep your emails to you know, three sentences, keep them very short, but make it very easy to invite them to more information. Mm. Now, you can do that in a couple of ways. Um, you can do that via a link to a landing page if you want, or one way that actually breaks it up for your brain is to put the bulk of the email below your signature block. The signature block creates a, a natural break where if you're going to do three sentences, do your three sentences and then go, Hey, I've put a little bit more information below my signature block and let them scroll down. to. So to your point, give them all the information they need, remove friction, don't add steps, but break it up so that their brain doesn't open an email and be like, ah, wow. Gosh, sure. this is going to be a homework yeah. assignment. Yeah, so yeah. And just, I think that's, part, one, that's, that's one of like piece the, of advice. Of course, of course. And I think part of like the nuance of it is short, quick sentences, lots of line breaks. It's not, mm -hmm. yeah, like you said, yes. if, it, if it looks like a novel, it's going to get closed. It's homework, quick. right. Yeah. Okay, so, so we have the more qualifying email up front. You're not relying on like the seventh email that's a cat meme to get them to say yes, right? They've, they've said <laughs> right. yes. Now you're on this call with them. So what you're advising here is if you did a good job up front, you don't need to go through the discovery process, but is it, should we still be asking like just a couple questions around like, Hey, how are you making sure. decisions right now? Like, is that helpful still? Yeah. As long as it's not meant to uh, make it easier for you to sell, um, you know, like your questions shouldn't Ooh. be qualification around, um, you know, me, me, me questions. They need to be you, you, you questions like, Hey, to make sure that, this is going to be helpful to you. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, I think there's questions that you can ask that are going to help you um, help them more. <laughs> if yeah. you know what I mean there, right? McGuire, like, I think that's really important. <laughs> yeah. Versus the um, like, who's going to be the signature person? Like that kind sure. of questions. Stop it. Like get that, yeah. get rid of that. Um, trust that the person that you're talking to uh, can mobilize change in the organization and find out later if they can't, but you've got to get them excited. Now, um, there, there's one other uh, brain science thing that I've got to yeah, share here of around, <laughs> around your messaging. Um, and this one, this was a big one for me. Our brains, and you've probably heard this a few times, but I want to make this very applicable is that our brains, we actually make all of our decisions in the limbic, which is the feeling and emotion center of our brain. Um, with, you know, so it, it kicks off feelings and emotions, mm -hmm. and then we use the, the neocortex, which is the logic layer, to justify it. So decisions are made with feeling. Logic is used to justify. Now, why does that matter? Well, logic is actually polarizing. Uh, meaning that if I lead a discussion with logic, with data, with ROI, with facts, with figures, if, if our 
brain is already has a feeling leaning one way or the other, we will use your data to reinforce our feeling, whether it supports or goes against. Um, you know, an example of that would be uh, like a, a NASCAR slide. Like this is always my favorite one, but you know, your logo slide on, uh, on your, your presentations, like, hey, we're working with this company, this company, this company. It's something that you're so proud of, right? Um, but it's, it's logic. And so if I start a discussion with, um, hey, we're working with Microsoft and Salesforce and Zendesk and you know, this company, and we've helped them drive this kind of change, right? That's logic. Mm -hmm. There's a, if you're gonna present that to 10 different people, here's basically what happens. Let's say five of those people um, are receptive to your message. So those five will hear those logos and go, oh, cool. Well, if they're good enough for them, they're good enough for us. But the five that are thinking that you're full of crap are gonna hear that same, those same companies and do the opposite with it. They're gonna say, wow, we're gonna be a big fish to, or a little fish in a, a big pond, aren't we? Or, or, and uh, yeah, we're gonna get totally lost here. And those companies, none of those sound like me. Right. So your logic is polarizing. And so my, th this is why stories are so important to tell um, and I, I always, I joke about, um, it, watch a couple of reality makeover TV shows and see how they choreograph their episodes because they actually make it all about the, the, the hero. And um, it's about illuminating things that that hero didn't see were issues in their own business. Um, doing it with empathy, disarming them, especially like Queer Eye and Netflix is the greatest at this because they do an incredible job of disarming um, that the person that they're going to help has already volunteered to be on the show. It's not like they're like, you're a disheveled mess. Uh, it's, <laughs> hey, I know I need help. Um, but they, they disarm and then they illuminate for that individual some of the things about their world that maybe they didn't realize were causing problems. Um, and then, only then, do they talk about the, the way forward and the way that they can help. Imagine if reality makeover TV shows all started with, hey, look how great I am. I've helped this person and this person and this person and this person has 50% more dates. It'd be like, this is the worst <laughs> yeah, show I've ever seen. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. Right. Instead, they make it all about them. Like, hey, why, did mm -hmm. we, why are we here? And, and then they're like all dancing around, putting on clothes and being themselves so they know exactly what they're getting. And they're like, hey, you know, your toenails could use a, a cutting, like you could climb a tree with those things. Um, like, you know, maybe, and you're, you've got this lazy boy over here that's kind of dirty. If you ever bring somebody over, they're going to be grossed up. And so they start to point out these things that maybe the individual didn't realize were contributing to their problems. And then only then do they flow into, here's how we would approach it. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. really important for the way that you position your own products and services is start with them, help them see that maybe you being an outsider with a fresh perspective can bring a different uh, way of thinking about the problems that they're dealing with. And oh, by the way, here's how we would uh, you know, approach that. That has a really big impact on your ability to sell and help buyers make better decisions. Yeah, and we'll have to we'll have to trade notes and compare frameworks because um, I, I love the uh, the reality TV model. The model that I use is actually factors in a few different things from entertainment, but most closely, it uh, I model off of the Hamilton musical and how they progress their information to get you to a lot to get you to the endpoint of agreeing that a vice president could kill another political leader, but not leave the theater 
crying about the fact that that happened and instead leaving talking about the legacy of Hamilton's life, um, which is exactly what they wanted you to do because the first words of the play are the curtains open and they ask the question, how does a bastard orphan son of a whore and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot grow up to be a hero and a scholar? Like the first words of the play are, how does someone who has nothing become an American hero? And then you leave the theater saying, wow, what an American hero. And it's all through how they were able to tell that story throughout. So oh, we're definitely trade frameworks yeah. on that. That's um, cool. But, but what's really key to what you've been saying here in this, this component is you're going to cut out most, if not all, of your discovery. But that doesn't mean you then bring them on a 45-minute product walkthrough of your right. you know, screen share going into your admin tool and all that stuff. It is more a, a, a call to tell a really good story. Slides will really help tell that, especially with visuals. But you're, you're helping them feel better about themselves in the process because we feel better when we hear stories. Yeah. And to me, whether downturn or not, the, the real like value of a sales presentation in your sales process is you are testing and finding out engaging what is the emotional level of buy-in this person has towards wanting to continue the discussion and if you follow some of these like points that you just mentioned there are these almost these little like mile markers along the way where it's like okay are you bought into this yet and if they're not then there's you don't even need to talk about your software or whatever you're selling because it's not going to apply to them anyways but if they buy into that upfront story of like the situation being set up and and what's going on in the landscape and the need for changing then there's a logical progression towards what your company provides, right? Exactly. Yeah, we're right on. That's perfect. We've got nothing so, to <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that was part two, reducing friction in the sales process. And we'll kind of have to get through part three here relatively quickly. But um, you talked about as well, the third part, make the buying of your product easier. If mm-hmm. you're sending out contracts, like cut out language. So I actually, um, I took your advice on this um, about a week ago and a contract I sent out, there was typically a clause in there that was like, if you have to cancel a meeting with me within 24 hours, without 24 hours notice, it was like first time is fine. But second time you get charged, I don't know, 250 bucks, 500 bucks without 24 hours notice. And I just, I pulled that out of it. Uh, And there was one other clause that was, as I'm looking at it, I'm like, Oh, that is really self-serving, isn't it? I cut that out as Mm -hmm. well. And then I also let them know, I was like, hey, I removed these two clauses to make it easier for you. Got the contract signed within, you know, 24 or 48 hours. But I I can attest firsthand that, who's to say if they would have, I mean, I'm not saying they wouldn't have signed regardless, but it removed another layer of having to like complicate things. And I think that's what you're getting at here is decomplicate the buying. Yeah, exactly. I mean, lawyers are people too. And uh, they're wired to look at a contract to know that there's going to be some stuff um, that they, they need to, like, they're on guard as they're reading mm-hmm. these things. And so I love the fact that not only did you remove them, but you told the client ahead of time that you removed them um, because that's disarming for the legal people or whoever's got to read this thing. But yeah, I think um, if, you, if, if you make your contracts very readable, like my contract, uh, my contract, like, has jokes in it. Like, I'm, I'm trying to make my contract, it, like, it doesn't all have to be, like, um, here for, there for, that, like, that kind of crap. It's just like, hey, I'm really excited to work with you. Here's what I'm going to do. 
Um, like, you know, I'm going to be a partner. I'm going to try to make you look good. I'm going to adhere to your culture and your values. And then, but then there is some legal language yeah, like, around. Here's like, the legal yeah, I'm stuff, gonna, yeah. <laughs> right, I'm going to protect your confidentiality. But then the, you know, that kind of language, that's one way. Um, you know, you just mentioned a great example of that. But you know, what I see a lot in especially SaaS contracts is this auto renewal language mm-hmm. uh, where it's like um, you have to auto renew. Auto renew is in here, but you have to tell us 60 days ahead of time if you're going to cancel. Like that kind of language is horrible for multiple reasons. It's always viewed as one way. And maybe you could say it's mutual because uh, it helps us to be able to plan and blah, blah, blah. But remember that whoever signed the contract, when it comes to 60 days before renewal, they probably forgot it's in there. Or whoever signed the contract's not in their role and there's somebody new on it that doesn't know it's in there. So you could either remove that language or... Uh, put a clause in it that says, hey, uh, we require 60 days notice if you intend to cancel, but um, our obligation is to remind you 120 days out. And if we don't remind you in writing that that clause exists, then it doesn't exist. Like that kind of stuff to take, if, if you need to have yeah. one-way language in there, make it mutual somehow. But that kind of stuff is going to make your, again, the buying journey easier in that the contract process is going to become like they're, they're, you're building trust to the goal line instead of eroding it right when they're about to sign. Now, what about, to use a term you, you mentioned earlier on in, in this um, conversation, uh, consensus selling, right? Where there's multiple mm-hmm. people who have to like buy in. How do you make that part easier? And it, maybe it's not just at contract level. Maybe it's in the second part of the framework of the buying process in general. Yeah. How do you navigate <laughs> CEO needing to be involved, but he's, he's working from home in North Carolina and then the CMO needs to be involved, but she's in Chicago, right? So how, how do you navigate that when there's multiple decision makers who need to be buying into it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, what, is a, what is a buyer, if you've got somebody who's kind of a mobilizer that you're working on, like mobilizing change, right? So that's who your project sponsor is. You know, all of these pieces together are gonna help them get to that consensus sale um, because you're, if you just picture what it's like for them, um, they're going to have to present the pros and the cons to this. Um, they're going to have to present it in, um, they're probably going to have to create their own story uh, if you don't give it to them around, hey, um, you know, this happened and here's uh, the, the approach. Like if you're mobilizing change in your organization, how do you do it? Do you do it with data and figures? If I buy this, we're going to get 50% more leads. Like, no, you're going to say, hey, uh, I recognize that we had this problem, but the problem is broader than I thought. Um, I went and I evaluated these three different solutions and I found one that is going to be really appropriate for what we're trying to do. And the buying journey is going to be really easy. Um, here's what could potentially go wrong. Here's the implementation process. You, you've got to arm that, that mobilizer to be able to tell a story to all of those people versus just laying facts on them, right? Because that's how change happens. But then number two is um, it's something we haven't talked about, and I know we're we're kind of running long here. But um, you know, the the way that you present pricing has got to be very transparent too. You've got to give the mobilizer a framework from which to talk about pricing, um, to say, hey, uh, here's what the investment is, and it's based on the amount of volume we're going to invest in this many users. And uh, they require that we pay up front and there's a minimum of one year, um, one year commitment to the technology. And uh, 
they're, they are providing some mutual incentive around getting this thing done here by the end of May. Um, and so you're arming them to be able to tell the story and for that CFO or CMO or CEO to say, hey, you got to get that price down. That buyer, instead of having to go back and forth, uh, can now say, well, I, now, I already know how to get the price down. We can commit to two years or we can accelerate our cash payment or we can accelerate when we sign or we could um, you know, buy a higher volume of licenses, which would bring the whole pie down. Um, it, it, it's about arming the buyers to be able to tell stories and to make all the decisions um, mm. so that they don't have to keep going back and forth to you like you're buying a car and the rap has to keep running to their manager. <laughs> so give them options. Yeah, give them options, give them a framework, but yeah, help them tell the story. I think that's more important than ever. And that story's got to include both the pros and the cons. Okay, a couple more questions here before we get to our wrap up. Through everything we've discussed with the changes that should be made, um, how do you feel this, like, like does it impact, like, and, and you, you're a former CRO, so you were the one who was like in charge of building out projections and forecasting and quotas. Do we reduce quota expectations on reps? Do we increase them? Do they stay the same? How do those, how do those hard numbers and metrics get adjusted? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, the way that you do quotas, uh, there, there's a whole formula for it. Um, I mean, the answer is it depends, which I know is the worst answer of all time. <laughs> but, um, but it's got to be based on your revenue projections and your, your company targets, right? So you, you establish a line and you say, um, this is what we have to hit. Um, now, we know that not every rep is going to stay. We've got reps that are going to ramp. Um, we've got reps that are going to leave. So we need to set the total amount of quotas to just above that number um, and then divide it among the reps that we've got. And so like there's this whole water floor, waterfall um, procedure that goes into assigning um, quotas to reps. I mean, a good company should be setting quotas to be at about um, the total amount of quota that you want all of the reps attainment to get to about 80 to 90% of that but you know that only 60% of your reps are probably going to hit it, but then you're going to have another percentage of reps that kill it, that do 200%, which is how you get to that 80 to 90. Um, and so quotas are always a result of company targets and where you need to get, um, because you're trying to drive part of the uh, behavior extrinsically through this quota thing that's basically kind of like a stick. Mm. So if as an organization, most organizations are adjusting guidance right now. Um, and there are some companies that are in harder hit uh, industries are adjusting them down. Some, like Zoom, like Zoom's probably not raising quotas, but there are companies like that that are doing really well. So you've just got to look at what is the guidance that we're providing to our board, our investors. Um, and then I, I believe that you should be adjusting quotas, especially in a market like this uh, for the companies that are getting hardest hit. Um, your compensation is one of the things that both extrinsically and intrinsically motivates you. And uh, it, it, it kind of goes into this pile called fairness. But mm. if your reps don't feel like the juice is worth the squeeze, that the effort that they're putting in in terms of their time, their resources, is worth the rewards that they're getting, which is not only money, but it's recognition, it's status, it's freedom, it's family time, it's function. Um, if those things don't match, then they're less intrinsically motivated and they're less likely to perform well. 
So you've got to work on that fairness element right now. And that's got to be based on what the company is projecting they're going to do. Let's talk for a second here. And I think we said beforehand, this is like the toughest question is the companies who have the products or services that are directly tied to industries pretty much on freeze travel, live events, um, you know, others that are just totally like, you know, restaurants, right? So what, if anything, what, you know, what advice do you have for those companies? Yeah, it's got to be to think about what this world looks like when it all comes back and what are the changes that are going to need to be put in place for when it all comes back. So one example, I work with a company that does office check-in systems. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's the kind of system that like when you're going to an office um, and then there's a little iPad there and you plug in your name and it takes your picture and then it notifies the person that you're there to see that you're there, right? It's, yeah. uh, um, so like who needs that right now? There's nobody going to offices. So no, like their sure. revenue went from exploding with growth to zero. And so the advice for them is to go, all right, when this comes back, let's just picture what the new world's going to be like. Um, we're, are we going to want to control the amount of people or the flow that comes in? Are we going to want to know, um, like, you know, yeah. do we need to make it touchless um, so that you don't have to touch anything when you come in? So is it an app on a phone? Um, if, you know, they also manage shipping um, so that if things come in, it notifies the people of what's there. Um, like, how do we make sure that this stuff's safe and that we know what's coming in and who's coming in? Does it have to take your temperature? Like, I, I mean, I, again, I'm just kind of spitballing sure. here. Yeah, those all make it's sense. It's just though. like, it's, uh, if you're in the, the travel space or the event space or any of those things, like, what do we, what can we just picture or imagine the world's going to be like when all of this comes back? Hopefully it comes back sooner than later. And these, all those organizations need to be ready for it. Is there something mm-hmm. you can do to help them be ready for it? Like that's, that's the thing that jumps to mind immediately. Yeah, no, and I, I totally agree. And in fact, um, you know, one of the companies I'm working with right now, they have a product that just really can't be sold right now because of what's going on. And like the product involves like being outdoors and touching things, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, uh-huh. But, um, you know, what we've shifted towards is, actually, first off, the outreach message within it, it says, I know you're probably not making any decisions today, but it's helpful to plan ahead. So the whole strategy has been reoriented around planning ahead for when the curve flattens and what, like, like you just said, what is this going to look like? And how do you want to be getting, you know, in front of people or whatever the value prop is, right? Once we're, you know, once people are back to doing things, you know, and not stuck inside. Um, So I I, I think, I think we're in alignment there. The other thing I've seen too is, you know, one of my um, on and off clients, uh, one of the things that they've done is they actually shifted, and this is kind of your earlier point, they shifted entirely their market. So um, rather than selling into live events, which is what they were doing. And and I'm actually referencing here uh, fan food who, you know, we had Carson Goodale, their CEO, as a guest last season. Um, you know, they, they sell in-seat food delivery, like your, your hot dog and beer, your concession mm-hmm. food at live events, at sports, at concerts, which obviously they can't sell. But I thought what, what Carson and his team did that was so smart was they made an immediate pivot and said, okay, hospital cafeterias, can't have crowding there, 
you want people to not be standing in lines. Let's do a delivery thing there. We just bring food. Brilliant. Right. And that's, I'm like, okay, man, I I wouldn't have even thought of that. Like that is really, really smart to do that. So that's awesome. and, And I think that comes back to your first point, which was like, like what segment of the market, maybe it's a market you haven't looked at at all yet, but what segment of the market deserves your most attention at this time? Well, yeah. I mean, I think for, for you and I, like, you know, my, my life, you know, I went from uh, CRO and head of sales of three other companies um, to being a speaker and a teacher. Right. And it's all in-person classes. I was booked out for eight weeks straight. Uh, like, mm. you know, the beginning of uh, beginning of April or I'm sorry, beginning of March, if you wanted a date in March or April, you couldn't have gotten it. Two weeks later, I had nothing but openings. Like it was all gone in two weeks. <laughs> the only reason gone, we right? can do this podcast right today <laughs> and you're not like on a plane somewhere is because. But yeah, it, it was crazy, right? And then, um, and so I, I had to shift everything. Like I had yeah. to shift to all virtual. Um, I'm, my focus has been on give, give, give. Um, I called my top five CRO um, clients and all I said to them was, um, you know, I, I sent this an email. I was like, hey, if you need a safe uh, space to just share uh, strategies with, and I'll, I'll beat you up in a safe space if you want. Um, but like, I've been through this before and you're probably feeling really lonely right now. Um, so just pick a time for my calendar. And, and so the first five that I sent out, four of them booked it within 15 to 20 minutes of me sending out the email. Yeah. And then I've had, I've had those calls and each one of them are just like, ah, like, here's what we're doing. What do you think? And, and just strategizing on it. So um, I had to shift my complete focus to, um, you know, the, the focusing on a downturn. How do you apply different things to that? I changed my website. I changed all of my programs and I'm doing all of it virtual. I think we're all doing a lot of that. Yeah. Um, but I now have an eye towards, hey, when this thing comes back, what's that changing world going to look like? And how am I going to stand out? And so I'm already focused on those things too. And I think every company should be thinking that way. Can you let our listeners know where they can learn more about you, where they can find you, where they can get your book? Yeah. I mean, I think um, the the place that I share the most stuff is on LinkedIn. Um, So you can follow me or connect with me. If you connect with me, please let me know that you heard me here. Um, Just having that like versus just the blind ones or the, um, uh, you know, I, I noticed we have like connections, like the, the, all those, Mm -hmm. those crazy LinkedIn connection requests drive me nuts. Like that, (laughs) talk about something that feels tone deaf, but um, follow or or connect with me on LinkedIn uh, or Twitter at T Capone. Um, But obviously uh, the the book is called the transparency sale. I've got lots of information and ways to connect on um, at transparencysale.com. Awesome. What are to, to wrap up, we'll each do our top one or two lessons or takeaways for the listeners based on our discussion today. I'll go first and I'll, I'll give it to you. Um, I got to focus on you know the, the part that I know best, which is the messaging side of it, the storytelling side of it. So, I mean, if nothing else, I think augment your messaging to fit the times appropriately and figure out what does a less insanely awesome version of your value proposition look like? And, and more of a, like you kind of said, the risk avoidance thing earlier, because, you know, I didn't mention this in this conversation, but something I've been writing about is in a up market, most companies are selling to one of the top three of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, esteem, belonging, self-actualization. But those only exist if the first two exist, which is the first two of the, of the pyramid are physiological and safety needs, which are the two things that no one has right now. 
So can you reorient and augment what you're saying to be more in line with protecting a physiological or safety need? Uh, that's how you'll find just generally more success in getting people to want to have the conversation in the first place. Todd, top one or two lessons or takeaways. Yeah. I mean, I, for me, it's, um, just have practice extreme empathy, like know that you're, you're dealing with human beings that are all dealing with the exact same things you are, not only in their personal lives, but their professional lives, which obviously influences their, um, the, the messaging that you're going to use to communicate with them. Um, but also, you know, ensuring that you're optimizing the, the journey for them because knowing that the priorities are different, you've got to make everything super easy. And then that last little nugget that we talked about is I'm, maybe I'm in the minority on this, but I'm just an advocate for extreme focus in times like this. It's going to help you hone everything that you do and give you uh, extreme credibility, which they're going to feel as it turns out confidence is contagious and uh, it's going to speed your buying processes considerably. So uh, those are kind of the, the couple for me. My final question, which is how we end every episode, fill in the blank. Entrepreneurship is blank. Oh man, I, I saw this one and I was trying to think through it. Um, entrepreneurship for me is, um, I, I mean, this is probably cheesy, but it's exhilarating. All right. Like I just, um, you know, as the managing director of venture scale here in Chicago, we, um, it, you know, it's an early stage tech incubator focused on sales and revenue focused on entrepreneurs that are early stage, um, like between a seed and an A and man, I just, I get such a thrill watching the build um, and being a part of the build and experiencing that. And then in my own life, I've, you know, done this twice myself, but then I've, you know, run and built a couple of startups. Um, it's just, it's exhilarating to me. And if you've got the runway to do it, you've got to, my opinion is you've got to try it once or twice and then you'll be hooked forever. So for me, <laughs> entrepreneurship is, is totally exhilarating. I like that. And I'll tell you, especially during, you know, the current times, it is, you know, I've found it to be, and I think like you, like everyone had some hits they took in some capacity and it was like a, a day of feeling sorry for yourself. And then like, a, all right, how do we, what do we got to do to fix this? You know, what do we do to yeah. steer the ship in the right direction? And it is as crazy as it sounds. And I don't want to sound insensitive to the situation, but it's like having to figure all this stuff out in real time is like really strangely like exciting, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> I'm with you, dude. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's like, you know, making the pivot and then like going out and telling my wife about like, hey, this is what I'm doing. Yeah, this yeah. This worked today. It's kind of, it's fun. It's cool. <laughs> he is Todd Capone, the author of The Transparency Sale. You can find it on Amazon right now. You can also work with him directly through SalesMelon with training and speaking, or you can work with him if you're an early stage company through VentureScale, where he's the managing director. Thank, th thank you, Todd, for joining us today on Startup Heart Man, the podcast. Dude, that was a blast. Uh, thank you so much for having me. That wraps up today's conversation. Did you like what you heard? Startup Hype Man, the podcast is available on every major platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and more. So be sure to subscribe on your platform of choice and leave a rating and review. Do you want to be an upcoming guest on the show? Email media at startuphypeman.com with your idea and my team will review. Our theme song is Change the Game by Jay-Z, all rights owned by Rockefeller and Def Jam Records. 
And hey, if you want to work together on making your startup story the only one that matters, email me at rajiv at startuphypeman.com. That's R-A-J-I-V at startuphypeman.com. Well, that'll do it for today. Thank you for listening. Thank you to today's guest for joining. You have been checking out Startup Hype Man, the podcast. I'll catch you next week. But in the meantime, word up, raise up.